Would you open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 2? We've been on this study of Mark at a time more important than ever, I think, in our culture. Mark was written at a time when people were beginning to wonder, what did Jesus say? What did he do? Did he really walk on his bathwater? Like, I don't know. Like, the stories were starting to proliferate. And so Mark was the very first gospel written that actually gives record of what Jesus did and said. And if you have a God that doesn't fit within this, you have to, it's like a chiropractic adjustment. I might need to adjust it a little bit to get to this. Because anytime I say or you say, you know, I don't think I could ever serve a God who, what I'm really saying is I would never serve a God that doesn't disagree with me that God only would have to agree with me. And by the way, that God is you. That God can't challenge you. That God can't transform you. That God can't change you. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And by the way, that falls across all spectrums of Christianity. Always go back to Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? And we only have four records of that right here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the only four records we have of what Jesus said or did. They're accurate. I believe they're God-breathed and inerrant and given to us for today. Mark chapter two. Jesus has got back to his hometown of Capernaum. And a few days later, Jesus entered Capernaum. The people heard that he had come home. N.T. Wright makes a really good case that this is not just Jesus' hometown, but his house. Think about that. Jesus had a house. He'd been 30, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's like the ultimate bachelor. Like he's got to have a, you know, the bachelor pad. So this is his house that they're about to poke a hole in the ceiling. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now remember, just last week, we were looking at Jesus here. He had healed people. He had cast some demons out. He woke up early the next morning to pray. The disciples came to find him and say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. I wonder if one of the ones that was looking for him was these men with the paralyzed man. They they were looking for Jesus. And Jesus said, let's go somewhere else. Right? I don't really have a wheelhouse for that. At least I didn't last week, but I've really prayed and I've seen what the Lord is. I just, I got really excited. I got charismatic yesterday afternoon (laughs) as I was reading through this because they came back to find him. And now they're like, look, they know that if we don't get in there now, Jesus might leave again. They're holding on. And here's what happens. Jesus preaches the word. Like, no, 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 that's not what we're looking for. We came for the dog and pony show. Some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them since They couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, keeping in mind, probably Jesus' roof, by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, what does this fellow talk like that? Why does he talk like that? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In verse eight, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? 
but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, he took his mat, he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus, would you give us wisdom today in your word? What a promise we have here today of our sins being forgiven. And I pray that your word would be a light, a lamp, a a real live illumination of our path today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Jesus in verse 38 of chapter one said that, let's go someplace else that I might preach because that's why I have come. And we see here in just these few verses, three of the things that he preached often, right? He preached the word, number one, we just saw that. I believe that he preached the forgiveness of sins and that here, not explicit, but implicit is that he preaches the cross in it, in just this little vignette here. He starts with preaching the word. Now, when you think the word, you probably think what I think, which is he just opened his Bible and began to preach the word because that's what we think in our modern context, except he didn't have a Bible, right? Like the, 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 the letters hadn't been written, the gospels hadn't been written. And by the way, there are other per, uh, passages where it talks about the scriptures. He opened the scriptures and talked to them. Luke chapter 24 is one of those places on the road to Emmaus, the disciples. He says, he went through the scriptures and showed them from Moses to the prophets how Jesus must be this. And their hearts burned within them through the scriptures. But that's not the word he uses here. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say he taught the scriptures. He says he taught the logos. Now I texted like three people that are way smarter than me yesterday and asked him how to pronounce that word. You know how many different responses I got? Three. So you tell me, is it logos, lagos, loganitas? I mean, it's, I don't know, but... The people that sell the software logo say logo, so we're just going to go with that. So they sold software. (laughs) Logos. That's what he preached that day. The logos. That is a word that is absolutely pregnant with meaning in the Greek culture. I uh, found this on the Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember those? Yeah, I was a kid. I remember we had a whole stack of those that I don't know, probably ended up in the dump for all I know. Because now the encyclopedia is on the internet. But the logos was a word that was used by Plato, by Aristotle, by Greek philosophers. And the logos was this idea that, this is the quote, Greek philosophy and theology, the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. That's what Jesus preached to them that day. John, in chapter one of John, would actually use that word, that the word, the logos, was made flesh and dwelt among them. That Jesus was the meaning implicit in the universe. Because what they're saying in Greek culture was that there's this meaning out there that if I can just find it and understand it, then I'll be able to be fulfilled and I'll have my identity, the entire reasoning behind the universe. If I can, it's a discovered thing. If I can find it out there somewhere. And Jesus is actually putting a flag in the ground saying, look no further. I'm it. 
I am the creator, I am the designer, and because of that, I am the definer of your purpose and your meaning. How many of you have a toaster? Like a toaster toaster. I know most of us are keto, so you haven't seen it in a while. But for those that toast your bacon, right? Um, it warms your food, right? It cooks, it warms up your bread. That's the purpose of it. The design of it is for that. Now, if I'm in the bathtub and the water's a little tepid, why not just throw the toaster in the bathtub and let it warm the water? Right? Because the logos of the toaster is not for that. It will destroy me. That's the purpose and the design that I've discovered about my toaster. That is what Jesus is saying about him. I am the designer of this entire place. In fact, John actually says that he was the creator. He became part of the creation and they knew him not. Jesus is defining it. He is designing it and he's saying to them, I'm it. In our modern context, it's important because we no longer, for the most part, because we're secularists, because we're humanists and we're well progressed in our education, that we know now that there's no God and so there is no meaning and purpose to be discovered. It must be created from within us. Everybody from Dawkins to Hitchens says that. Here's what, um, you guys might remember this. I shared this from a while back and originally heard this from Tim Keller, but it's worth sharing again, that there was... These are two quotes from two secularists who make that case for a world without God, without a designer, that you can't find your meaning any other way but by creating it. Stephen Jay Gould, mayor, American paleontologist, this came from a Time Magazine edition. He says that, or episode, what are they called? Issue of Time Magazine. I got Netflix brain. I want to say an episode of Time Magazine. <laughs> Gould says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook that we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, he says is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers from ourselves, from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There is no other way. And that wisdom and that ethical sense just voted for a law in New York that says you can kill a baby up until birth. So the question, if you're getting your meaning from, I'm just gonna make it up myself, who gets to decide then? Does our culture, does Russian culture, who, who gets to decide? That's, this is a dangerous, it is terrifying if I'm creating my own meaning. If this is it, I appreciate his enthusiasm, but we're screwed. And Jesus is saying, you're not, because I'm the divine. I've literally been there. Jerry Coyne, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, a, a fairly loud atheist, says, cosmology doesn't give us one iota of evidence for a purpose or for God. Secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize we must forego our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't, we make our own purposes and they're real. And as a cosmologist, he must know how empty that is if he's honest with himself. Because that little blue dot that we exist on in this cosmos, 
even if you're a secular humanist, you have to admit that that world will one day die, that the sun will burn out, and everything you did, every war that was fought, every kingdom that came and went is all gone forever. Nothing is left. There is no meaning and purpose if you're honest with yourself. And Jesus is saying, I am the meaning. I am the purpose. You will exist long beyond this life. Before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And you're going to exist long beyond after that. There is a purpose and an identity and him coming to say to this man, who, by the way, came in, gets sunk through the ceiling. He's being preached now, right? Jesus is preaching the logos, the meaning. And here's a guy who had his friend somehow talked him into lowering him through the roof, cut a hole in the guy's roof, lets him lower him in there. And the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven? Like, everybody there knew what he was there for. Did Jesus not know? Or was Jesus using this man as an example for us that whatever your life is, whatever your greatest problem, even if you are paralyzed, that's not your problem. Your problem is your sin. And you're separated from God. And for me to forgive these sins means that I am now restoring your identity as a son of God in my family. Your sins are forgiven. And he's gonna go ahead and heal this guy, right? But the fact that he starts with it says that there's something way more deeper. That my identity, that for me, for my design, I am designed for a specific thing. And I love this. This is, again, a Tim Keller definition. You might as well just go read his book on the book of Mark, I can't put it down. When we define sin, okay, this man's sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We would say sin, like missing the mark, like I think that's the original Greek word. It's like specifically what it means. A transgression against the law. But here's Keller's definition of it that really just hits home with me. That he says, I take a page from Kierkegaard's The Sickness Unto Death. And I define sin as building your identity, your self-worth and happiness on anything other than God. Instead of telling them they're sinning, speaking to those in a postmodern truth culture, because they're sleeping with girlfriends or boyfriends, I tell them they're sinning because you're looking to your careers and romances to save them, to give them everything they should be looking for in God. And such idolatry leads to drivenness, addiction, severe anxiety, obsessiveness, envy of others, resentment. It is the sin underneath all of sin. Is the garden... There was the knowledge of tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was Adam and Eve saying, I will decide what my design is. I will throw the toaster in the bathtub if I want to because I want to make the choices. And God's saying, no, it's going, you're going to destroy yourselves. And look, this is as relevant as it's ever been because there is a, and I use this word very loosely, she calls herself a pastor, but this is a wolf. She is not a shepherd. Shepherd, protect the sheep, they don't destroy them. This woman stood up in a, a conference celebrating abortion just recently and created out of purity rings, if anybody remembers around promise rings for some of you actually saved you know, free marriage and some of you didn't and Jesus loves you and forgives you too. But she was taking those rings. She asked for all of her followers to mail them in. She melted them down, created a little statue of a female body part out of these rings and presented them to Gloria Steinem as an award saying that that whole thing, that whole purity thing, that whole, by the way, fleeing fornication thing that the Bible says, that is just a footnote, she calls it. 
And here's why she says that, because she defines her faith. She says, to me, the whole point of having faith is it allows us to believe in a bigger story than the one we tell ourselves. Those purity rings are a footnote, she declares, unveiling the sculpture. This is a real life thing happening in our culture right now and she got a standing ovation. And let me tell you what that means. The whole point of having faith is allow me to believe in a bigger story than the one we tell ourselves. That is one more example of my will be done, my kingdom come, I'll do it, I'll throw the toaster in the bathtub. Jesus was preaching a meaning and a purpose that lined up with how you and I were designed not as a cruel, giant, cosmic buzzkill, but saying, look, you're not gonna do that. You'll destroy yourself. And we can look at that and think, that lady's crazy. And in our own lives, we have our own versions of that that we live out every day. Every time I put a hook in and say, if I can just get that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be fulfilled. The Bible uses the word sozo. Then I'll be Saved. And look, I've been around long enough where I've, I mean, I've, tomorrow, I'll, almost a half a century, 48 years tomorrow, I'll have been around this earth. I've made several trips. And I have myself thought, if I can just get this, then I'll be happy. Inevitably, it's always a violation of a design for me. It puts a weight on someone else. Half the time, I think, in our marriages, the, the, the problem is I've literally put a weight on my wife that only God was meant to fulfill, and I violated the design. But I've been around long enough that I remember in the 90s, guys and girls working as waiters and waitresses, working their butts off, getting every, if I could just get this career off the ground, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll be sozo. And a handful of them, just a tiny bit. That's why the music industry is so complicated, because it's just like the lottery. Sometimes you get lucky, but that's not a business model, right? So, but a couple of them, it, it happened for. And I saw those people that we worked with who got what they always wanted and everything they needed, and every VH1 behind the music proves it. Do they still have that show? You see, this, it's the same episode. I got everything I wanted. I was famous, I was rich, and I was depressed and I wanted to blow my brains out. Because I got what I always wanted and I was still me. And Jesus is saying, I am the one. I, it's, I am your portion. I am your prize. And these people who came there that day to get their miracle were looking for something that could... I mean, you've been paralyzed. You can't even blame the guy. If I can just get this, then I'll be happy. Then it'll, everything will be okay. And you know as well as I do that within a couple months, he was probably having the same emotional struggles because he's still him with his sins. And for all of us, when I make that about my identity, if I can just get that, that is a violation of my design. Jesus is my portion. Jesus is my prize. And at 48, I think I'm getting a little more sure of that. I'm getting a little closer to it. And I'm understanding that the meaning of my sins being forgiven is simply that I now have a relationship and an identity that was meant from the beginning of time that I'm back in fellowship with Jesus, with God. You see, if Shannon were to come up and punch me in the face, not that she would, but this is all hypothetical. 
Hypothetically speaking, Shannon just decks me. Not that I would have earned it or deserved it, but I'm just, okay. And Holly stands up and says, Shannon, I forgive you. Right, I mean, well, that's nice of Holly, but I'm the one with blood spilling out of my nose, right? When the Pharisees said only God can forgive sins, they were right. Psalm 51, David, when he talked about his sin against Uriah, he said, verse four of chapter 51, I have sinned against you and you alone, God. I thought he sinned against Uriah. He did, but the sin, the underlying sin, was the sin against God, and only God can forgive that. He's preaching forgiveness of sins. Darren, you have screwed this up and I forgive you. Because you know as well as I do when there is a, a breach of sin that the worst thing that happened in the garden, it happens in our lives, that there is a break in relationship and the person who has been wronged has to forgive and only that can restore the relationship. And then Jesus preaches the cross. He's preaching forgiveness of sins and restoration of identity. And implicit in this, he's preaching the cross because he asks this question, which is easier to say that this man's sins are forgiven or rise up and take your mat and walk? Now, seems to me that the, the, that's a real easy answer, which is, well, say your sins are forgiven because ain't nobody can prove that. It's probably why theologians of thousands of years, people have struggled over this question. It's why it's such a great question because there's probably more than one answer that are all true. Why, what's harder than this? And a, a commentary that I read last night that I would tell you what it was, but I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, I, literally last night I was just like, oh God, this is so big and so beautiful. But a commentator that I read last night said that at that moment, Jesus signed his death warrant, that there were people out there who wanted to use him to get their saviors, and there were people who wanted to kill him, and he forgave both of them. And that day, the shadow of the cross fell over Jesus' path. That's the, the comment that the person made. Because at that moment, he knew that the answer to the question of which is harder, for him it was going to be to say that your sins are forgiven because the cost of his forgiveness was gonna take him to the cross. That for this man to get up and walk, Jesus would have to be nailed down. That for this man's sins to be forgiven, Jesus would have to take the sins on him. Self, which was harder? That was way, way harder. And by the way, I have a little glimmer of hope that just, I just, for me, it was so beautiful because I'm looking at it and thinking, yeah, but Jesus, he didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven. Everywhere else in scripture where you see that, the man asks for it, the woman asks for it, but this one he didn't, and I'm confused by that. But don't you think, I mean, do you think that in one verse, this is why you got to let the Bible interpret the Bible, okay? Because as much as I wish that Rob Bell was right, that we're all saved and we're all, we're all taking, I wish that that was right. That wasn't how we were designed. And by the way, if that were true, we could all just go home. But it's not true. Jesus would have to pay an enormous price for that and people would ask for it, but this guy didn't. And I just wonder if Jesus, it says that he knew the hearts of the men that were thinking the bad things, the hard hearts. Do you think he didn't know the heart of the man who was paralyzed? Do you think that maybe, just maybe, that in this is this implicit idea that Jesus is so aggressive with his grace that even a half-baked, half-cocked request for forgiveness is still heard? 
that just, he didn't, he could see his heart. If he'd have come in with a hard heart, for sure, right? Maybe Jesus would have, but that's not what happened. Here's a guy that came in and Jesus could see his heart in the same way that he could see the Pharisee's heart. And he was so aggressive with his grace, so aggressive with his love that it counted, that it was enough. That's why we get, it's so dangerous to get into, you have to do steps one, two, and three, and then you're saved. Just the, the oh, Jesus, would you forgive? I repent. I, I want my design to line up with you. A half-baked, half-incorrect, that he's still so aggressive that he hurts your heart and did it anyway. It's the only time he did it. There's never a time in scripture again that you see it, but at least gives us a glimpse of the father's heart of how aggressive he is with his love and with his grace. Your sins are forgiven. You are restored in your identity with the Father. That is a big flipping deal. Like, which is harder? Take up your mat and walk? Or your sins are forgiven? Jesus is your portion. He is your prize. Half of us, I don't know, like the first time I got saved, I got saved because I didn't want to get burned. The second time I got saved... Uh, was because I saw the movie where they're cutting people's heads off in the rapture, so I didn't want to get my head cut off. I got saved for that. I got, I got saved for all kinds of reasons when I was a kid. Every one of them was about me getting something from him to be my savior, not him my savior. And I'm so grateful and I'm so glad that he forgave me anyway and he accepted my half-baked attempt at trying to get to him. And yet the more I get and the older I get, the further I get down this, the more I realize everything else I've tried is nothing. It's empty. It's fleeting. He is our prize. That's a big deal. The God of the universe didn't make us get to him. It's one thing to look at, hey, look at what these people did. They dug through this roof. They worked so hard. That's a great Sunday school lesson, isn't it? Working so hard to get your religion, to get your thing. And Jesus broke through the space-time continuum. He became one of us. They went the last half second. He went millions of miles. He worked so hard to get to you. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Stand to your feet. I want to get you out of here before the traffic. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to me, for the logos, that you are the purpose that me creating my meaning is just a fool's errand, that you have created a meaning that we can discern, that we can understand, we can rest. That whether I ever get healed, whether I ever get that job, if I don't get anything else I want, I've got you, and that's enough. Lord, a million years into eternity, everything here is gonna look like just a snap. This is such a brief moment of time that if I don't get what I want here, You've given me what I need for there. We're so grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, that we can even pray those things to begin with. It's in your name, Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior of our souls, that we pray. Amen. Have a great week. God bless you guys.